We are a society of rules and laws. These concepts help to provide people with the structure necessary to keep a community safe, thriving, and healthy. We learn from a very young age how we choose to behave in words and actions impact not only ourselves, but others. So it makes sense that we apply a similar systematic way of thinking when we're learning an art. Hard definitions of do's and don'ts are incredibly helpful, but after a time, they become stifling when creativity butts up against what we think is acceptable and what's not. While some are obsessed with the rigid definitions of what photography is and should be, there are others who see photography as a joy-filled means of self-expression. It's the art itself and not the methodology behind it that's important. Kate Brakey is a photographer who blends the photographic process with that of a painter, resulting in one-of-a-kind pieces that express how she sees the world and experiences her life. Whether she is defined as a painter who uses photographs or a photographer who paints is for others to worry about. For Kate, it's all about making the work. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Welcome to the show. It's good Thank to you have very you. Much. Thank you very much. It's a great honor, in fact. And I went back oh. and I'll, I'll watch it from now on. I went back and watched a whole lot of these and... Uh, know now what I've been missing. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, I, I very much enjoy doing it, especially to have a chance with people, to talk with people like you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we were just saying that, you know, you were raised in Australia. And looking at your work, one of the things that it brings to mind for me as a person who really sort of appreciates your work is sort of the dearth of relationships that I, as a city boy, have had with, <laughs> with wildlife and nature. You know, other than cats and dogs, occasional mm -hmm. mice. You know, uh, growing up, there there really was no relationship with nature at all. I have it a little more now because I live near the edge of the Angeles Forest. So we get the occasional bobcat and bear mm -hmm. and, you know, coyote. Yeah. But still, that connection with wildlife is yeah. pretty rare. And I think that is the case for most Westerners. And a lot of your work revolves about the relationship with, with animals. But I, I'd love for you to sort of take us back to when you were growing up, you know, in, in Australia and how that relationship, how that understanding of, of, of wildlife in relationship to the lives of human beings, including you, sort of, sort of took shape. I mean, I was a very lucky kid. I had probably an idyllic childhood because I grew up in a, a rural country town with like native virgin scrublands and wilderness and vast open spaces and the Southern Ocean, I mean, it was just all one big sort of giant playground and there was wild animals. There was kangaroos everywhere and it was, you know, there was just a lot of, of wild animals, a lot of Indigenous people obviously living in the towns but still sort of encounters with a much rawer, more primal idea about the relationship that was just part of the way, you know, you incorporated in a way because you knew these people. Trees to climb, as I said, the ocean to swim in, um, galloped horses along the beach as a kid, bareback, you know, had, had like a fabulous life really. And again, Australia's like full of untouched wilderness and beaches that go on for miles and there's not one other single person on them except the odd surfer <laughs> who hopes not to get eaten by a shark, which happens routinely. <laughs> uh. Also, I had parents who were 
uh, interested. They were all gardeners, avid gardeners. They were interested in biology, botany, and I just grew up with sort of that knowledge as part of my experience of the world. And then that, I guess, just evolved into love, my desire to sort of make images about all of that stuff. And so Mm. funnily enough, I've never taken sort of street photography because I've never really lived in, well, I've lived in cities, but but not the kind of cities that have that intense thing going on that becomes Mm -hmm. hugely interesting to people who are street photographers. So I've never really taken pictures of people or buildings. And every now and then when I get asked to jury a show, I often get someone else to come and sort of see my selection and they say, but you haven't picked one person who photographs people of buildings. You better go back <laughs> and like, sing, include that genre of photography because it gets a bit biased. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, I, I much appreciate, you know, photographers. I grew up, uh, I mean, I went to art school, you know, I don't know, Lead Freelander, all, all those people who were doing that very conceptual sort of city stuff. I copied them. But when it comes right down to what I want to do and what I love doing, it's photographing you know, the natural world and, you know, honouring it in this way. So I would say that my childhood absolutely was like the biggest influence in all of that in my life. In the area that I love, because at the edge of the National Forest, we have wildlife, particularly a lot lot of coyote packs up here. Mm -hmm. And on the social media, I think it's called Next Door, there were a lot of people who, you know, who who are probably more citified than even I am, Mm -hmm. you know, They'll, they'll complain about the coyotes and what they can do about it. And, my, and, I, and I think, wait a second, we're in their yard, exactly. right? Exactly. And yeah. it's, it's, it seems like people look at wildlife here as is the, yeah. the, the, the inconvenience, even though they live at, you know, at the edge of the forest. And I think when, when I consider your work and, the, and your approach to it, that you're, the dynamic of how people exist with animals is very different from what many of us are used are used to. And so when you were, when you, you were young, you, you kind of mentioned that you had all that sort of wildlife around you. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what the relationship like sort of felt like. Was it like, like, Hey, we're just, we're just here temporarily. This is, we're living in there. In their uh, home, sort of. Not really, because I, re- you know, back then, I guess in the sixties, people still went out and and shot kangaroos, you know, to, f- to feed their dogs. I mean, wildlife was just part of something that you still kind of used. It wasn't there wasn't a great deal mm-hmm. of respect for it. Um, you know, the, the kangaroos are culled every year because they basically there's more kangaroos than than there should be. It's like deer, you know. So every time there's a drought, mm-hmm. they all die. But people go out and shoot them. Farmers used to eat them because it was cheap meat. Now they're used in uh, in restaurants because it's considered gourmet meat because it's so lean and good for you. There's all this fusion going on with, you know, kangaroo meat and Asian spices and the whole nine yards. Have you been to Australia? No, not yet. No, okay, you've got to go to Sydney. It's the foodiest place on earth. Anyway, um, <laughs> and so we had friends who had, you know, farms or, or we call them stations, big sheep stations, and, and they would, mm-hmm. you know, muster the sheep and then the shearers would come in and shear them and there'd be sheep dogs who were just working animals. It wasn't really very romantic. They just happened to be just tons and tons and tons of animals. And I had an aunt and uncle who were sort of animal rescuers before it was really official and they would collect up injured birds and injured anything and bring them in and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, resurrect them 
going over to their house, there was just everything. There was a wombat, there was magpies, there was joey kangaroos. There's still a great spirit in Australia because we just had, as you probably know, last Christmas we had those dreadful, dreadful wildfires where oh, yeah. three, three billion animals, you know, died. And there was a great call out to people to take animals that were burnt to, to see if they could be rescued. And so sort of regular people do that. They go out in their cars and collect up these poor things that, you know, are staggering around injured to take them back to the triage animal rescue centres to be either destroyed or treated. And then, as I said, mm-hmm. they call out to people to, to look after them. And a tr- surprising amount of people do this because – Australia kind of loves its wildlife, especially the, the iconic stuff, you know, the yeah. the koalas and the kangaroos. So there is this kindness towards animals. And I think because there's so fewer people in this giant continent and so many more, so many wild animals, there is a slightly different attitude. I mean, I was going to say about city people saying, what are we going to do about the coyotes or the deer are eating my vegetable garden? You know, mm-hmm. if, if you get rid of the coyotes, you'll have more rabbits and they'll end up eating your vegetable garden you can't control an ecosystem you you start ruining it and then the whole thing goes to hell as we well know and uh you know we're getting the pollen pollinators are all going the birds and the bees there's three billion less birds than there were in the 70s and they're the pollinators and we need our pollinators you know so we actually have trees and on and on and on it goes and as you know it just becomes this huge horrendous mess so it's more about respect yeah is is this ant that you just mentioned the same one who uh, painted uh, yeah, painted yeah. Uh, photographs? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a, yeah, I thought that was fascinating that <laughs> that yeah. you learned how to do pr- pretty much what you you've been yes. doing for most of your career from these kits. Yeah, yeah, with these kits where people would get where they get to colorize yeah. black and white prints. Yeah. And she did it actually when she was you know like. 15 for the local country town photographer who of course shot black Mm -hmm. and white pictures and then for an extra uh, I I don't know what shilling as probably she would tint them just very gently and make you know what they're like they you you rudy up the lips and the yeah and I never really did it back then I used to watch her and I used to be fascinated by the little kit and she actually painted painted as well she was actually a landscape painter an amateur painter and I would go with her and watch her paint and I as I said I got to use all that material and just sort of I ended up being good enough at it I thought well this is what I want to do in my life (laughs) I I often think that we do what we're encouraged if you're good at something if you find out early on at age you know seven that you're good at mechanics and everyone says to you what do you want to be when you grow up you say a mechanic that's what I'm good at so it's almost this strange thing you get shaped into something that yeah, I don't know. Do you well, what that? I love about your, I love about what I love about your story is that you sort of break the mold of what a lot of people feel like you quote unquote should do. It's like, well, hmm. you should either be a photographer, or you should be a painter. You, know, you really can't do both, <laughs> yeah. right? There can be a lot of pressure, especially when you get into school and you're learning, and there are not a lot of other people that are doing the kind hmm. of work that you, that you're doing. And the pressure can be, well, maybe that's what I should do. But tell me about how you finally came to embrace that this is how you wanted to express yourself. Well, actually, I entered art school as a painter printmaker. So I was already like well-versed in in color and ink and paint and mixing stuff. And then I, the photography department, this is in the mid-70s, when photography was just being introduced into art schools in Australia as like a, a legitimate art medium. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'll do some of that because it will be handy and useful for my 
printmaking and then just totally fell in love because suddenly we were getting access in magazines to all of these people out of California doing this very experimental stuff and including some women, Betty Hahn and um, B. Nettles. And there was a bunch of women do- in the, from the Bay Area doing mm-hmm. really interesting alternative processes. And they were hand coloring, they were stitching, they were doing wonderful stuff. And it was all really totally opposite to the Ansel Adams fine print, you can't touch the surface stuff. So in fact, it was perfectly fine for me to come from painting and printmaking and go, I'll just start slathering paint all over my photographs because, hey, they're doing it in America. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it was fine. It was not even a question. In fact, it it set me aside because I was doing something people kind of thought was a little bit, I don't know, more more interesting. So, it w- and then Polaroid came along and we were all nuts over Polaroid and we just had these obsessions with the different media as they were sort of coming into, into fashion and different styles and then colour with Eggleston. And so it was kind of back then it was just like you do whatever you want and not many people were doing sort of fine print stuff in the mid-70s. And we were probably a bit late in Australia. We were just a little bit behind everyone else. So I think that had probably already happened here. I guess there was still the Ansel Adams school. There's always been that school of photography, but less and less so, I think, now. In the the body of work that I first became familiar with was Little Deaths. Small Deaths, yeah. Again, Small Deaths. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That's right. And the... And again, you know, it's like you're pushing back against expectation with the subject matter, right? Yeah. Because when people think about photographing wildlife, it's an idealized mm-hmm. version of wildlife when they're at the, the peak of their life and their, their beauty. Yeah. Uh, it's very much through the lens of how we want to see them. But by you photographing, you know, these, these small animals, these small birds uh, after their death, it, it provides a much, a much very different perspective to, it really challenges how we choose to see not only mm-hmm. these animals, but how we see life. It's a complete cycle. And, yeah. and, and I'm wondering about the inception of the, the, the idea. Where did that, how did that begin? Again, because I think I had animal rescue people, right, and I've been an animal rescue person, and half the things you ever try and rescue die. And you think, that's sad, and, you know, look at that. Now I can actually, like, see it in its death in a way that I you never can see something. Once that you have it in your hand, dead, you can mm-hmm. actually, like, really, really see the details. Again, because of my painting, printmaking background, I did a lot of art history that included early European painting and there was all those people who did those portraits of kings and merchants and the the Holbein stuff. What happened was I I decided I would take a a portrait of the the bird in its death, like sit it up and take its portrait as if it was still alive and almost like it was a human having its portrait painted. And I realized that when you blow it up very big, this is back in the days when I would go into the dark room, I'd process all my my film at the sink, two and a quarter, go into the dark room, make myself a contact print, pick the image, blow it up to 32 inches square, and then I would start layering paint on it. And it really was like you were coming face to face with – I mean, you know, we anthropomorphize. So as soon as something's mm-hmm. got an eye and a mouth and an expression, it's got its head tilted. Or it's, I started realizing it was just like the portraits of early European painting. It was also like the Edward Curtis uh, p- portraits of Native Americans in all their finery, you know, with right. the headdress and the whole thing. So it had 
it had a feeling that I was memorialising an individual creature that happened to be, you know, a small animal. And so I just thought that was a whole different way. You know, it wasn't a tiny thing that, you know, you pick up and it's in your hand. It was suddenly it had this presence once it was big, once it was human scale. And as I work on them, I can almost like have conversations with them, if you know what I mean. Like in my head, it's almost like you're relating to it as an individual creature. So I just kind of like the idea that we overlook the deaths all around us all the time and we overlook all the deaths in third world. We overlook deaths all the time that, you know, aren't we don't relate to in any way at all. And uh, we particularly don't relate to the deaths of, of small creatures. And I just like the idea that I was memorialising it in a way, you know, that gave it this uh, dignity and and uh, presence, I guess, you know, yeah. by making it into a painting. And so it evolved from there and then basically everyone I knew was were giving me small dead animals to photograph until I just couldn't even keep up with how many there were. But it was a wonderful thing to do and I did that for years and years and years and actually that kind of uh, – because that was after I did a graduate degree, which I did at the University of Texas in Austin. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what sort of, I guess, got me shown there. I'd actually I'd, – I'd been shown quite a lot in Australia, but as soon as I came – to the US and went to graduate school, none of my prior career anything kind of counted for anything because I was a student again. And then, if you know what I mean, it was like I had actually been collected by the National Gallery in Australia and I'd had shows and gotten grants. But when I moved here and went back to school, it was like, well, you've got to start again. You've got to make your way and, you know, it's more competitive. And anyway, so that's that work actually kind of got me and it got me a book published and the whole thing. So that was, again, that was the early 90s or early to mid 90s. But I continued to do that work because it was, it actually sold really well too. And it was very nice to actually be making my uh, my living as an artist, like actually making real money. Yeah. And then, of course, it gets like, how many more of these do I want to do? So I'm I'm perpetually doing, uh, I guess, several different series at a time. But I still go back to that work every now and then if I've got something really beautiful. Of course, I don't do it with film anymore. I shoot it digitally and I have it blown up digitally and then I still paint back over it. But I've moved on. I haven't done that in a while moved on to many other things as you know when you're when you're painting these prints whether they originally came from a a film camera or a digital camera what kind of painting materials do you find yourself using when you're creating this it's actually it's mostly oils it's mostly transparent oils um so it is exactly like the old-fashioned hand tinting except it's many 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 layers it Mm. just means that if they're transparent you can make them less transparent more opaque but you can still see the photograph through. And I actually love the idea that, I mean, part of what I realise I've always done is is layer on images. I mean, whether it's to gild yeah. them or whether I put wax on them or whether I sew into them. So basically I, I realise that I, I can't help myself but layer on photographs. And I think whatever goes on when, when you put other stuff on top of a photograph, first of all, it gets confusing because it's not obviously just a photograph. There's marks you make, there's mm-hmm. pencil, people not quite sure what they're looking at. So I like the, I like the fact that you kind of, that line between painting and photography gets blurred along the way. I guess I love the fact that it makes the image completely unique because you can never do the same thing twice. And there, so it's a very variable, even if I do an addition, it's totally variable. One, one is never going to be the same as the next. 
you know, I was always happiest in the dark room watching the magic chemistry go on. I can't help but love the hands-on part of it, the process part of it, the seeing mm-hmm. what happens and the variation in the process, whereas digital has kind of taken a lot of that away. Like, you know, there's something can be very sterile about staring yeah. at a screen all day and working on an image and there's it's not fun as far as I'm concerned you know I'd much rather make something and there's all sorts of reasons but I think there's a sensuality sensuality about for me about ink and and paint and not knowing what's going to happen you know like not being sure what it's going to look like that for me is all just a discovery process which again as I, I feel like digital just doesn't do it for me in that regard. I, I think to me, it sounds like a, a wonderful meditative process. It is. To not just hold the, the print. I mean, I love holding a good print. Yeah. But when you're working on it physically in that way, mm-hmm. you get to experience it in a way that you just can't if you just produce the print in whatever means uh, that we do today. Yeah. And because of the length of time that you're dedicating to it, you, you're engaged not just with the, mm-hmm. with the piece of art you're creating, but the subject. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, in fact, I've said this about the process because people are like, well, it's laborious and you could just take a color picture and blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, you when you work on it, when you actually have to render the surface of it, mm-hmm. you, there is this intimacy you have with that image. There, you, there are things you see in an image by coloring it, by retracing the lines with pencils or deciding you're going to do this or that to each. You, you know it's You know it like the back of your hand. You know it like, you know your own face because you've 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 spent hours and hours working on it and again I love that too I love the idea that you've have engaged with an image of something it's almost it's almost a sort of a a way of engaging with the thing itself again Mm -hmm. you've experimented with other photographic processes like for the las las sombras the shadows yeah there were photographs you know, photograms um, yeah. in which you actually put years. the subject on the photographic paper. But yep. tell me about being willing to sort of experiment or about, you know, what leads to that. Because sometimes if you have success in a particular medium, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. that just encourage you to do the same thing and keep doing yeah. it. Especially the galleries. Selling. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but tell yeah. me about the, the impetus for, for, for wanting to explore, to wanting to well, explore I, different methods. I guess we all just get bored. I think as, as creative people, we're always looking for something that, you know, is going to be fresh and new and entertain us. And so you can't do something for too long. When you're good at it, it almost becomes like, well, I'm good at this now. I want to do something I'm not good at and uh, mm-hmm. like figure it out. It's just much more exciting to kind of see what you get with something that you don't, you know, you no longer, as I said, no, no, or are good at. I've always tried different media and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I love everything about that. Like even failing is kind of fun too. You just go, yeah. well, yeah. So I've got lots of photographic friends who are very alternative process people and spend a mm-hmm. lot of time, you know, doing this careful preparation and make their own damn cameras and on and on and on. And it's just like, whoa. But I understand that every time they do it, they're really not sure whether it's going to work because it's iffy <laughs> compared to, oh, yeah. the oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and um, I think there's, maybe there's just two types of people. I don't know. People that just like play. It's like playing, you know, it's, it's all play. I don't know. It's like you would never knit the same sweater over and over again. You go out and you find a pattern that's got, you know, some elaborate pattern to see if you can do something more interesting. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, when you achieve a level of a success, people, everyone dreams about 
being able to be sell their work and be able to make a living from their work. But one of the things is is that once you start reaching a level of success and then you're getting, you know, get called to exhibit and to speak, is like then you have to sort of t- learn how to talk about your work. And I don't know if anyone is ever completely prepared to be able mm-hmm. to be able to talk about their work and not come off either pretentious or a complete idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so tell me about getting comfortable with trying to sort of... Um, never am. Voice I, no, never am. I actually, I guess I try and write about my work and usually, you know, you have to... I, I'm lucky enough to have been allowed to write like introductions to my own books and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I've worked very hard at the writing and I, I think that writing's actually for me much harder than being a visual artist because it's much more of a challenge. But I enjoy it for that reason. It seems to me like it's a much more difficult medium. But I, I work quite hard at it and then as I'm writing, I start realising that I'm making a different sense in a different medium of what I do. And sometimes I think, no, I just said that. I don't really think that's true. So you go back and think, no, be honest about that. And it was very funny in graduate school when I'd see graduate students who had to write art art statements, artist statements, and they'd just jokingly say, well, I just make this work and then I look at it and then I just make some shit up about it. Like it was never (laughs) about, you know, it was never an original intention, you know. Uh, They just make it up afterwards and if it seems to fit, that's fine and that will satisfy the the professors and so forth. And I think we've all got to be, we're probably all a little bit guilty of that because it's almost easier to to see your work in retrospect because sometimes you can't put it in perspective for what else you do in your life and why and how because you're sort of too close to it. And it yeah. takes looking at it and then thinking, yeah, that makes sense because that came before that and after that. And I get it now. I get why I did that, even though I wasn't sure at the time. Anyway, the answer to the question was, I think I write about the work as best I can and then I write it down and when I get asked to speak, I basically reference all the smart things I've said because I can't do it off the top <laughs> of my head. And yeah. I actually get really nervous. I'm not, a, I'm not a public person and I get really nervous. I'm, I'm, not, I'm never comfortable with it, ever, ever. I mean, I got nervous about this and, of course, it's ridiculous because it's not live and it's casual and I've met you yeah. before and I know you're not going to – say terrible critical things to me and you know what I mean it's like but I still get really nervous about it because I think for an artist it's actually I think I'm a fairly introverted person on one level like I think it's just me and my work Mm -hmm. and having to kind of put it out there I actually don't particularly like even going to my own openings because I feel a little bit embarrassed about being in the presence of my work and even if people are saying this is wonderful I love it I actually only see it fairly critically. I think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that and I really should take that one off the wall and go home and fix it. And so I'm, it's very hard for me to stand there and say, look what I've done because I never feel quite comfortable with that. Yeah, I, I relate to that. And, and that, to be quite honest, every time I sit down and do an interview, I'm nervous. Oh, really? Okay. But yeah, yeah. It never really, you know. it, but as soon as it starts, I just... It's fine, I know. I've, yeah. I've done it enough yes. that I know, I know how it works. It's like yeah. I'm nervous... I start talking, we start talking, and then... Yeah, it's all on. fine. The experience of talking about, about the work, for me, there's a similar self-consciousness about it. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just like, for a very, if I was being completely honest, why did you make that picture? I just felt like it. 
Exactly. You know, yeah. it's just like I just wanted to make it. I just thought it was mm-hmm. interesting. And then, you know, when I'm called upon to come up with mm-hmm. a more educated, informed reasoning for behind it, it's kind of like, oh, well, like you said, what can I pull mm-hmm. out of my butt? You know, yeah. that makes it's- it seem like that oh that there was something more substantive about it because maybe there is maybe there is something there but it's the the reality is is that i'm not often preoccupied with what those reasons are it Mm -hmm. may come to me later after i look at the body of work and then i can go oh oh maybe that maybe that's what what was going on with me when i was making Mm -hmm. it but when you're in the midst of creating you're not really thinking in those terms yeah I, that's yeah that's exactly what i was meaning to say is that it's sometimes that having perspective on your own work is a very good thing because at the time it's you're right it's like i felt like it i really like red and i felt like it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, there's a uh, the work that you did uh, out of darkness where you were working with this camera yeah. that was triggered by the subjects it was no, sort that, of a, that was out of darkness was like a landscape series it was called creatures of creatures the, of darkness. Uh, of light, yeah, light and darkness with the. Man, with the I'm trail. all screwed up with my. No, that's notes. right. No, no, no. That's fine. That was with the trail cam. Okay, that yeah, with, with the, the trail, trail cam. cam. And they're really popular now. Like everybody's doing trail cam pictures. Oh, yeah. But that is fine. It's just that I, I was doing it many years ago and like turning them into great big works of art and realizing that they were used mostly because uh, I'd blow them up very big and I'd colour back into them so that, you mm-hmm. could, again, you couldn't tell. See, it's very hard when I show work on a screen to actually see the the medium, you know what I mean? Right. So yeah. I was going back in and sort of colouring every hair on the Cody and making them much more, again, like a drawing. Anyway, that was really fun because, as I said, I would just set that camera up and wait three days and go get the chip. You should do that if you've got wildlife around your property get a trail cam because they're really cheap now. You can get really good ones for like $90. They used to be much more expensive and they've gotten, of course, way better quality, way higher resolution and they're smaller and they're cheaper. And the thrill of going out and getting that chip and not knowing what the hell thing is going to be there. And, of course, mostly it's squirrels and sparrows, but occasionally there's some fabulous picture of some weird yeti. It could be yeti, yeah. could be a chupacabra, <laughs> mostly. But if you're lucky, it's like a mountain lion. Most podcasts work hard to build an audience so they can solicit advertisers. It's one of the ways to earn the money needed to compensate the producers, hosts, editors, and other staff. Whether a podcast begins in a converted garage or a professional recording studio, it eventually needs to be sustainable in order to last. The other way is to rely on listener support. It comes down to the audience itself to provide the funds to produce the show. The latter is what we've been doing for the last several years. And while it's not allowed me to leave my full-time job, it has helped me to step away from some freelance work that took away time from the show. I've declined several offers for advertising because I didn't think they were a good fit. They cared more about the numbers than the work we were doing. If I had said yes, it would have been a nice check for several weeks, but it wouldn't have resulted in a long-term value for the advertisers, for me, or for you. So for now at least, we're completely relying on your support to make this show happen each week. Each month, we enjoy over sixty to 70,000 downloads a month for our archive of interviews. But only a very small percentage of those listeners 
contribute to the show. If that's you, why don't you step up today and help us to continue bringing you great content? You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Even $5 a month can and does make a difference for us. You've been thinking about this for a long time. Today is the day to finally do it. Thank you so much for your kindness and support. love how you have have sort of adopted different photographic techniques uh, or processes as they've developed like we talked about earlier in terms of going moving to digital cameras as opposed to to, to film and it's like well, you're, you're not you're, what yeah wait we all had to I mean, yeah yeah. You know, one of the things I'm curious about is the output, because I think I could imagine that when you're moving away from a traditional photographic process and you start digi- thinking about mm-hmm. digital output, then you, especially for you, you're having to reconsider, okay, the paper, you know, yeah. it's absorption yeah. of, 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 of the oil exactly. because it's going to be completely mm-hmm. different. And basically yeah. you're having to sort of reinvent uh, what you do. So tell me about that, that challenge. Um, well, it, uh, what I came to realize, and because I, I teach workshops, um, and I was teaching way back when everyone did come along with their uh, silver gelatin image, and we would just color it, use matte paper and color it with oils and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, no one had wet dark rooms anymore. And I had to completely almost sort of, when I was learning myself how to do it, I was also realizing I had to completely adapt to whatever I was teaching people. And in the end, the bottom line, is that you any any photographic paper that you print on, all you do is you coat it with a roller with this uh, acrylic. What is it? A polymer? I guess it's a polymer. Okay. okay. And it's usually a UV inhibiting, non-cracking, non-yellowing po- polymer. I think they use it for like canvas prints, commercial canvas prints and stuff. But you just coat your print, and then you respray the whole surface with a matte, a very matte fixative, and then you just proceed as normal. So it just makes the – but actually that's only if you're using oil paints. If you're mm-hmm. using pastels and pencils, lots of the surfaces are beautiful. The velvety watercolour surfaces, uh, all those lovely stippled papers that are all the expensive um, – I'm trying to think of them. You probably don't use any of them. They're the, the, the real – they're Albert Durer. They're, they're named after all the famous artists and they're thick and they're like printmaking papers, right, and they've got a real yeah. tooth. So that so you can put watercolor and you can put pastel and you can put pencil on those. So in a way, it, it almost it almost like pushed me to extend what I was doing. So I now work with these dry pastels and pencils almost exclusively. I've kind of phased out the oil painting thing because again, I got sick of it. It was like it's too easy. I'd rather find another medium to play with and then the nice thing is that as you know you can print on any surface now and they sell all these incredible fabrics so i printed at that whole nest series on silk pure silk Mm -hmm. and then sewed back into them and again i wouldn't have been able to do that with photographic paper so in some ways having the option of the digital surfaces to work on means that i now have this whole other range of ways to alter an image so it wasn't necessarily a bad thing but as I said, I kind of missed the dark room. Do, do you work on one piece at a time and then completely dedicated to it? No, or are no. you working on multiple pieces simultaneously? <laughs> what, multiple, like 20 okay. or 40. Wow. Uh, often, yeah. well, it often I have like, like a show where I need so many pieces and I sort of go through the process of deciding what they are, photographing them, 
printing them and then having them all then go through the next process, which is colouring them, which is, again, is like the nice meditative part because you can actually sit and watch Netflix and be sewing away or colouring mm-hmm. away or, you know, it's, again, it's like knitting. It's something that you can do while you do something else unless it's like a German movie with subtitles where you have to look up and read everything. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm just kidding you. But so, no, I, I work on everything at once. And, uh, again, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a lot of work and some of it doesn't doesn't work and doesn't make it to the final cut. That, that was my next yeah. question in terms of, you know, working on something and, and, and when you realize it's not working. Yeah. You know. Although the, the, the wonderful thing about what I do with the layering and the processes is that, and I say this when I teach, uh, often for me, everything goes through a process of you love it and then you go, oh, that's not working. I hate it. But I'll just mm-hmm. keep going a bit. Oh, it's getting better. Oh, yeah. I love it again. Oh, I hate it again. I just ruined it. But you can go... <laughs> Like you never give up on something, well, you do, but but you never, you really, you really keep working because sometimes it actually goes through getting better with not being sure what you're doing and not being, and again, that's one of the things I try and tell all the, the people I teach is that you might as well go for it because if you think I don't like this, it's like, well, I'm going to go wild with it now because I think I'm going to discard it, but I might as well give it one extra kind of something. And then you go, damn, that's a masterpiece. I love it. Yeah. I think it's one of the uh, disadvantages of, of, of being a photographer is that the pr- process of creating something is so brief. It's, you know, a fraction of a second. So yeah. you don't have the, the luxury of really working on like, something for a period of time to really yeah. go through that experience of it's working, it's not working. You know, you can, you can have that from, say, a session of shooting, for example. Yeah. But in terms of an individual photograph, you don't really have that experience until you're sitting down to, to edit the body of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the post-processing, you know, what, what you're going to do to it basically in Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever, what you do to it, obviously you can make it very different. And I do that as well. See, I actually do computer stuff with all my images before I do my other stuff. Right. Uh, what degree of stuff do you do on the, on the computer? When um, well, I, I put them into, especially if I'm going to, yeah, depending on what, what medium I'm putting on them, I actually will push and pull all the tonal ranges. I'll push and pull all the color. So, in fact, what I do is often I output an image that is, it's not entirely monochromatic. It's actually got color in it, but it's color that's mm-hmm. been altered. And then I go back and put all this pastel and pencil on. So it's got, and sometimes I, I put in, uh, Filters, all sorts of the grungy, strange filters from, you know, flypaper. That's, yeah. that's yeah, to, to give them this, to change the, the surface enough to make the surface a bit more painterly so that it just pushes them outside being photographic. So then when I go back and work on them, they get to be even more painterly yet. I don't know. It's hard to explain. I'm actually going to try and do a workshop with George, through George, on um, exactly what I do, like step by step by step from making an image, putting it into Lightroom, putting it into Photoshop, putting it back into Lightroom, outputting it, then layering on pastel and pencil so people can see step by step kind of how I work. Yeah. And the trouble is I'm not a technical person, so I muddle my way through. Like I've actually never done any course in Photoshop or anything. I just watch tutorials and I muddle through and, and I probably do everything wrongly mm-hmm. i think someone once said to me um oh, it doesn't matter I, it, it just just technical stuff i like what's that mean and it's like 
but you work on a computer and you don't know what workflow means. You know, it's like. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, find, I find that the less I know about the tools that I'm using, the better off I yeah, am. Yeah, well, I'm glad days. to hear that because the, the Michael Clarks of the world scare the shit out of me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what did you see his little webinar about the backup? about oh, having like the layers yeah, of backup. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I've, it I've just got, I've just got this oh and it's the God. very one it's Lacey. And he's like, it's the very one he said, never buy one of those things. I have to invest in a, a before the year's out a raid uh, system. So yeah. I can have a bunch of redundancy here. Yeah. Cause it's, it's yeah. If, if Michael saw what dumb. I had here, I, I'm sure I'm getting earful. Yeah. Um, there was a body of work that you, you did after a personal, uh, some uh-huh. personal, very personal events happened. And, and that work. That was out of darkness. That there was, was out of darkness. Yeah. Well, there was three and, different stages of the, of my, as I call my recovery from. Okay. The, yeah. And it's. And not, I, well, I, th- I thought it was really sort of interesting because that was a body of work where you were a- able, where, where you took some very personal experience that were, that, that were happening you know, an event that had happened in your life and use that mm-hmm. to use what you had been, uh, the very mediums that you had been using to create work to do something that was much more expressive and and personal. And mm-hmm. I really thought that, that that's both fascinating and also one of the braver things an artist can do. To me, sometimes it seems like it comes naturally to people. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's always uh, more of a challenge to break through that wall, that resistance that I often have to trying to dig into stuff, particularly if it's painful or difficult mm-hmm. to sort of face. And I'm wondering how that process was for you, because you had all this experience in your belt creating work. But now mm-hmm. you're not only just tapping into, you know, a different a different approach yeah. to subject matter, but really having to delve into yourself in a way that was probably very uncomfortable. Um, interesting enough, I think because most of my work is always about how I feel about something, like the small deaths is, as I said, about the kind of the, the sadness and to some degree the joy of, of making something, a, the memorial. I've always felt like my artwork is just an extension of kind of who I am and how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it what it's not a big stretch to kind of make a, a body of work about you know, internal turmoil and chaos and emotional this and emotional that. I mean, I think that almost is natural for me. It's almost like uh, it's it's almost like art therapy. You know, it's almost like it comes out of you and it's good for you because it make, make it makes it makes you feel you're making sense of something that's happened to you, and that if you're in a very dark place, making artwork that's very dark is kind of almost the I guess the healthiest thing you can do because mm-hmm. it again it gets it it gets it out there and I've always found that art was was my savior. I mean, always like that when you feel anything, you you go make art and and you realize it's it's putting it out you know physically into the world as something. And I think interestingly enough, there's a lot of people can see and relate to it too. Like especially when you tell them how you did it and what state of mind and why and everything, people go, oh, my God, that happened to me. And, yes, that absolutely, and that's why I was attracted to it. I get mm-hmm. that. And they, it's really interesting because you're actually putting out something very real and without knowing people kind of understand it. And, again, everyone's felt yeah. hurt and pain and sorrow and, you know, it's like the medium, you know, 
Bach wrote the most beautiful, beautiful work after his first wife died, and you can feel it, you know, and, and Van Gogh's terrible depression and mental illness, it's all there in that work, and that's why in some ways I think we are attracted to it because we get it because yeah. it's universal stuff, you know. I was doing a presentation, I think it was last month, and I had like a personal revelation because I was going through a bunch of old work and I was putting together this the, this presentation. And as I was speaking, I realized suddenly that that I've, I've dealt with depression and anxiety all, all my life. Hmm. So I've had some very dark, dark moments uh, throughout my life. But you don't see that reflected in the work. Hmm. And that, that, that the work is, was always, always drawn to beauty and positivity mm. and, and, and especially uh, finding beauty in things that other people dismissed or found ugly. Mm-hmm. And that was really a surprise to me because I'd never mm. really thought about it. Because when I thought about all those periods in my life and how dark they, they were and how painful they were, the fact that uh, I didn't see it in the work was very interesting to me. Um, and it wasn't that I was, and I don't, so I don't think that I was seeing that, uh, using that work as an escape because hmm. it certainly didn't feel like that when I was making the work. Hmm. Uh, but, but it was, it was just more about me sort of tapping into a part of me that uh, I was finding difficult tapping into in my day to day, but with a camera, I was able, I was able to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't say that that thing, you know, I, I can't say that it was keeping me sane because I had no perspective at it, at it right. until I looked at the work. But I think it's always really kind of fascinating that subconsciously that the reasons why we do things and the way we do them, do them, the reasons behind them can be so elusive even to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's what's wonderful about it. And I, and I think that mm-hmm. that very thing allows our work to be something unique for the people who view them. Mm-hmm. Also, I was going to say, like in your case, in a way, perhaps going out and photographing beautiful things was like the ultimate kind of distraction. It took you, to some extent, outside of your darkness to a place where you didn't have to think too much Mm -hmm. about that. Like as soon as what I love, the focus of photography, you know, when when you go out there with the camera, it's almost like you disappear Sometimes you're so intent on making that yeah. image and thinking, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, like, you know, you get all excited about the image you're making and you are so taken outside of yourself. It's like going on this kind of dreamlike journey. And I think sometimes we long for that because real life can be kind of miserable. So it's almost this escape, this, ter- this incredible distraction that we love to do. I think it's probably like people who who dance or sing or anything like that, you know, it's a whole, it sort of reaches into a realm where you don't have to be dealing with the moon. Yeah. It's, it's a natural way of, of, of getting into a different state of mind. Yes, exactly. And that's what I think lots of people love about photography is that it's not, you don't have to train and train and train like you do some things. You can go out with your camera and you can just start seeing from the word go and discovering, you know, how, what you're looking at and how you're looking at it. And, you know, it's an instrument that's teaching you to see the world. I think it's great. And I think everyone who has been a photographer feels the same kind of joy and excitement when they pick up their camera and think, I'm going to go out and take some pictures today, not knowing what you're going to get. But it's mm-hmm. always a 
fairly joyful process, I guess, unless you're a war photographer. I mean, I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. your, your latest book release was Moonsong, which is a collaboration. Well, that's uh, uh, it's a portfolio of images uh, okay. that I'm doing with a guy who makes these beautiful boxes. And I'm doing it with this woman who's a poet and she writes about the moon. I photographed the moon. I just pulled together all those images and she pulled together all her poems and we kind of matched them up. Sometimes she wrote specifically for the moon images, particularly the eclipse images. Yeah. And they're all going in a box. It's like a box set. But right now, uh, this is kind of a bad time to be trying to put <laughs> things out into the world because no one's going to galleries. And I've got three. I've got three shows up currently, like in galleries, three yeah. big shows, and they're all like by appointment only. And you know, probably oh, wow, three yeah. people, you know, have seen them. So, although, so I've just put sent off a show to Atlanta Celebrates Photography, mm-hmm. and usually I'd go out to the gallery for the opening and give a talk and blah blah blah. And Atlanta Celebrates Photography is wonderful because, again, it's like every well, you know, these things every every gallery gives themselves over photography, so you can just spend days and days and see so yeah. much stuff. And I love Atlanta. Uh, this year, it's all online, so they're putting together these big online shows, and it's it's just it's different. It's a shame. It's not, you know, not nearly as fun seeing an online show as it is walking into a gallery and seeing the real thing. And you know, I'm, it's disappointing. But what can we do? And yeah. I was interested in this because of the, the, the nature of the collaboration. Oh yeah, um, sorry. I yeah. The so you know, because for the great majority of work, it's just what you want to do. Yeah. And here you're yeah. you're riffing with someone else, and I was wondering yeah. what that process felt like as compared to what you're used to doing. Um, it's great, actually. I I'm not a great collaborator. I when people have asked me about collaborations, I've said mm, I like to be boss of everything and you know I'm controlling and I just want to do my own work by myself for myself thank you very Mm -hmm. much unless of course it's like my twin like the Stan twins or the I don't know there's many twins that collaborate and they work as one yeah yeah, um, that might be different because maybe if you've been together since the womb you think like each other and you you, it's just two of you it's like having your own clone it's literally having a clone that like works with you and I think that would be fascinating but I've never really wanted to collaborate except, again, another media is different. Like poetry is a whole thing that I know really nothing about. I like poetry, but I – so she she kind of, you know, did her thing and she'd say, what do you think? And Or she'd write two or three different poems, you know, for the same image and say, you know – which one do you think best goes with your image? And so we'd talk about it. And, I, and again, you know, I had, I, I had like 100 images that I had to edit down to the 15 that I wanted to put yeah. in the portfolio. And so, you know, it was this nice uh, – she's a good friend. So it was a way of actually getting together and hashing over each other's work. And she would help me edit my images and I would help her edit her poems down to the poems that, you know, worked best. It was kind of a – again, it was a, it was a lovely sort of uh, – symbiotic you know thing where we were making a whole a whole thing out of two people's work and then there's the other part of it which is the guy who makes the beautiful boxes do you know jace graf no i don't know him. but you he, everyone knows jace because everyone has i mean everyone who's made a, a box or a or a a limited edition book knows Jace because he makes them all like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Everyone. I mean, half the people you've ever interviewed know Jace Graf because <laughs> they, he's done, he's done something in that regard and he's great. He's a very old friend. So in some ways his design of the box, like he, he, 
he picks the fabric and we came up with the idea of doing uh, NASA images of the of the far side and the near side of the moon for the mm-hmm. for the papers on the inside and how it would look, how there'd be folders and how there'd be letterpress and how there'd be uh, foil stamping. And it w- it's all sort of a, a collaboration really between three people, right? Yeah. Because he's the designer of the thing. So it, that is nice. And I've done other projects with him. I did, uh, I've done several other box sets with him where we sit down and go over all the fabric colours and all the lovely Japanese papers and come come up with something that really works well as a as a as an object for the artwork to go in, and I love that stuff. I mean, I actually do so just for my friends and family. I do quite a lot of like graphic design. I have a degree in graphic design before a degree in fine art, and I I basically always uh, design all the posters for my cellist friends and the book mm-hmm. covers for my you know. So I keep my hand in kind of the way something looks that's the commercial package for something. So I like doing that also with my own artwork, like making it even more because it's presented in a, in a lovely way, format, box, whatever. I actually do all my own framing, believe it or not. I, oh, um, do you? Oh, my. Yeah. Well, I do it kind of to, to keep the cost down. I used to actually, when I was a student, I used to actually buy the lumber, actually cut it, join it, stain it, buy the plexi, cut that, cut my own mats, like put the whole thing together again because it was like really it was the only way you could do it in within a budget because having right, something yeah. framed, as you know. So I don't do that anymore. I actually have people make me up the frames, but I, I you know, I pick the moulding very carefully. Um, I still I still cut up the plexiglass myself on the living room floor and then I put the whole thing together. So I do get to decide what it's going to look like, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, you know, there's yeah. a lot of series of artwork like those, the La Sombres, the photograms, mm-hmm. where I went out and bought vintage I, – I shopped for vintage frames for every one of those and each thing, whether it was a snake or a bird or whatever it was, you know, ended up – was carefully – the vintage frame was carefully chosen – for it and it took me longer to find the vintage frames and sometimes mend them you know sometimes actually tweak them it took me longer doing that than to make the actual work (laughs) (laughs) but it's kind of all part of it like the presentation is so much a part of it Uh, and I love it you know I love that part of it as well that's great so yeah yeah well, my last question that I ask yes. each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer and it could be anyone, oh my someone God. you've long admired or someone you've recently oh. discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh my goodness. I wish I'd known ahead of time because I would have had to think about it. Um, unfortunately, I'm not around students anymore because often there are some brilliant students that you think this person is is really going to go far and it'd be nice for them to do something like this. Um, yeah. Have you ever interviewed Holly Roberts? No. Mm-mm. She's a friend and I always loved her work. She'd be into it. She's a very nice lady. Um, what do you like about her work? She does, again, she takes photography and she basically does these elaborate collages. So she's um, really about making something uh, entirely different from from photographs and you never know you, you have to look at her work. It's very strange. It's got a sort of a, almost a, what, what I want to say, almost a comic book quality, but it's, mm. uh, anyway, it's, it's strange. I should do it in a second. Um, just well, trying to think. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Because, yeah. 
It's always a tough question for people. I know. But, well, uh, as I said, uh, you've already interviewed so many people. There's probably no one left in the world. Oh, no, there are plenty. Yeah, yeah, I need several well, lifetimes in order to even cut, a, cut into a small percentage of that. But, hey, thank you so much. That's all right. Was, thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you. Now I, now I don't feel so nervous. Thanks to Kate for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting katebrakey.com. My next online workshop is scheduled to begin at the end of the month. It's titled, Using Your Life to Jumpstart Your Photography. If you've been struggling finding ways to sustain your creativity during this pandemic, this course may be just the solution. It allows you to use the current circumstances of your life, just as it is, to create a strong body of work. It's meant to provide you wonderful breakthroughs and the beginnings of a body of work that you can be proud of. There are a few slots still available, and I hope you'll join us. Find out more by visiting nobechicreative.com or visit the link in the show notes and the website. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks to Fort Wayne Realtor for their five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list on the YouTube channel. I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Caitlin Watson for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. If you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.